the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. We're going to spend some time in this portion of the program talking about power. Now, at least you think we're going to dive into a bit of a thesis on how to reduce your energy bills and (laughs) save money. Uh, No, not quite that kind of power, but power nevertheless. A topic that while most of us don't spend a lot of time thinking about in a direct fashion, we nevertheless are engaged in it. Some of us exercise it. Others have a thirst or a yearning for it. It's something that we think about at certain levels, and yet we have this very odd relationship with power. We know certainly that the old adage, what is it, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. But what of our relationship to this topic of power from a spiritual standpoint? My next guest tonight has taken some time to dive deeper into this very equation, and he details his findings and really kind of kind of pulling back, so to speak, the, the layers of the onion to help us better understand our relationship to power inside the pages of Playing God, Redeeming the Gift of Power. It is written by author, executive editor of Christianity Today, Andy Crouch. And Andy, thanks so much for being on the program with us. Thank you, Craig. I'm delighted to be here. Fascinating topic. It's something that, as I say, well, we probably don't get up every day and think specifically about this topic. It's one that we're we're tied into on a day by day basis, and a lot of us find ourselves even in this in this struggle for or against power of one sort or another, uh, literally daily, don't we? It's part of being a human being. I think it's actually part of being a living. Any living creature uh, has some kind of power because power in the most basic sense, is just the ability to make a difference in the world, to make some kind of change in the world. And if you're alive, you're doing that one way or another. But as human beings, we have much more complex kinds of power than other creatures do, other parts of creation do. And that's ultimately because we're, we're made in the image of God in, in a way that other creatures aren't. And I think that's why every human being, um, you know, you mentioned a yearning for power. Every human being kind of wants room to, to make something of value and worth. But then also this has become very distorted uh, by our own sin and the ways that we've uh, distanced ourselves from God. Indeed, we see uh, laid out literally from the Garden of Eden uh, the capacity of power to either do good or do evil, and then it seems as if it's been a a history-long, lifelong struggle for mankind in trying to deal with what exactly is our relationship to power, what do we do with it, why do we yearn for it, how do we corrupt it, how do we drive it in the right direction so that it can, in fact, do more good than it does evil. You know, when when you lay it out like that, you realize in a way... The whole story of Scripture is a story about power. It's about the original power that human beings were meant to have. They're made in the image of God. They're the climax of creation in Genesis 1. And they're given dominion. You know, that's a power word over the whole creation. These very frail, vulnerable creatures, just like you and me, are are told that they're to have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and, you know, all this stuff that pre-technological humanity couldn't directly control. And yet they're given this vision that they're there to represent the Creator in the midst of creation. But then something goes very wrong, and I think you'd sum it up by saying they try to uh, declare uh, declare independence from God. They try to separate themselves from God and use their power for themselves. And the power that we were meant to have, which was meant to be for the flourishing of the whole world, ends up being kind of turned in on our own uh, benefit, our own self-protection. And then the question becomes, how is God going to intervene to set this story right, and that in many ways is is the story of the rest of the Bible. And it really is amazing, as you point out, I mean, literally in the opening chapter of Genesis, we see the first action of God, a display of Mm -hmm. his power, Mm 
<laughs> as he engages in his creative power to bring about planet Earth. Then we see later on, once mankind is about the scene, uh, first an account of the power struggle between Lucifer and God himself, right. and then later on man's power struggle as we engage in this battle in the Garden of Eden. And it seems as if this this issue of kind of a, a power struggle with God or against God has kind of been a component from day one, hasn't it? <laughs> Absolutely, and this was actually true even in the world where the where the Book of Genesis was first written down, because the other creation stories that were told by the the gods of Babylon or the you know the religion of Babylon, all said that the world began with a conflict. Uh, they were all conflict stories. The amazing thing about Genesis one is it does not have it doesn't begin with conflict. The conflict comes in later, and the the root conviction of Genesis 1 is that when God uses his creative power, it brings only abundance. It's not kind of a zero-sum game where if I win, you lose, or if you win, I lose. Instead, you get more and more flourishing. Uh, what happens, though, when the man and the woman are tempted, <laughs> and when they get into that, and when that sets in motion really history as we know it, is power becomes about conflict, and it becomes about competition. It's no longer about mutual flourishing, where we actually both could win. It's about one of us is going to, to dominate uh, the other, or one force is going to dominate the other. And we start to believe that that's the realest form of power, that the, the most real power is the power that can make you do something you don't want to do, rather than the power that can call into being a world or new kinds of creativity, new kinds of culture, uh, that actually benefits everyone. So what's fascinating about this, then, is we really get pulled into this topic, Andy, of power in relationship to whether it's being used for uh, malevolent purposes or, on the other hand, malevolent purposes, mm -hmm. that impacts every relationship that we have. I mean, it's certainly it, it, with God, I mean, sin is what better description of the power struggle yeah. uh, that exists between mankind and God uh, than to see sin and, and how that power fight's going on. And not just, though, on the vertical plane, but even on the horizontal plane in our relationships. Yeah. I mean, think of the young teenager who's rebelling against his parents, and all of a sudden there's this power struggle that we see that's being displayed there. E even the friction between husband and wife and relationships at that level oftentimes are, are demonstrative of this fight over power. They really are about power, and, uh, and, and I think that's because in many ways it's the, most, it's the most fundamental thing we're given to work with as human beings, either for good or for bad. Um, and so you do find it in every relationship, actually, every workplace, every church, every family, and, and most of us, realistically, the place where most of us have the most power is in our family relationships, especially if we're parents. But even, even as, as those of us who are parents know, children have tremendous power in their relationship with their parents. Mm -hmm. and, and of course, that's why so much of the Bible story is the story of families that either get it somewhat right, never entirely right, uh, and sometimes get it terribly wrong. Um, and, you know, again, we often think, you know, when we think of power, I think we often think of, you know, politics or perhaps military power, and those are very real. But when I started to dive into this issue, I realized actually all of us confront these issues every single day. I confront it in my own home, not just when I'm out doing allegedly powerful things, but even in choosing how I relate to my wife and my children, my neighbors. It happens at every scale of human society. Well, even at, deeper than that, perhaps, Andy, is that the power struggle that goes on internally. I mean, look, for <laughs> example, it, Paul talked about, you know, wow. I, spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. I know to do good, and yet I do it not. Daily I have to die unto the flesh. Don't we see demonstrated there, in that sense, an internal power struggle going on? Do we do, yield to God? Do we do yield to the devil? Who's going to kind of get control here? I think that's an amazing observation, and what it always, I think, uh, for many people, the real question in life is not actually, does God exist? I think most people know God exists, and Paul says even those who don't believe that sort of suppress the truth. They still know the truth. But the real question is, is God good? <laughs> and, and especially, if I serve God, well, does that mean I have to give up things I want? Does that mean I have to give up what's good? And the, the root of, of every abuse of power is the idea that, that we can't both get something good. Either I and God, I can't, God can't get 
what's you know good for God and good for me, or you and I, if we get locked in a power struggle, we start to believe either I win or you win. And when that enters into our relationship with God, we've basically believed the very thing the serpent says in Genesis uh, 3, which is God's actually jealous of his power, and he doesn't want you to have all of it, so you better eat that fruit so that you'll have what God doesn't want you to have. And that's the fundamental lie, that God wants you to have something that would actually be good for you, but that God doesn't want you to have. And that's such an amazing point that you make there, because there is an aspect of this power that we define in the flesh. And I mean, we just bring up the topic. We think of power. It's the energy to drive to do something, to accomplish something. And we often think that, well, the greatest display of power is when we're flexing our muscles to use power. Failing perhaps to recognize that it's somehow there's there's another aspect that can show how powerful we can be that in the flesh might seem to be weak, but in the spiritual realm is in fact very powerful. We'll talk a bit about that too as we continue our conversation today. Andy Crouch on the line with us today. He executive editor of Christianity Today and the author of a new book called Playing God, Redeeming the Gift of Power. We'll come back to more of our conversation as Lifeline continues here on KFAX. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Dissecting today in this edition of Lifeline all of the power struggles that we see at so many levels within our relationships, within our history, uh, really going back to the beginning of time tonight with Andy Crouch. Um, he, of course, does not go quite back to the beginning of time, but he's been around for a while, enough to be able to be executive editor of Christianity Today, a prolific writer. One of his other best-selling books includes Culture Making, Recovering Our Creative Calling. We're talking today, though, about his latest book, newly published by University Press, called Playing God, Redeeming the Gift of Power. Interesting, Andy, when we talk about the ways in which sometimes power gets distorted, we always have that sense that power is about getting my way. And if I just get my way, I'm somebody that's very powerful. And yet sometimes surrendering parts of ourselves, while perceived perhaps in the flesh to be weakness, actually can be quite powerful, can't it? Yes, and, uh, you know, it's amazing how often, you, how much time you spend in the first chapter of Genesis when you start thinking about this, because, of course, the first chapter of Genesis begins with God, the Creator, who we know as Christians is three persons, three in one, and there's that interesting moment in Genesis 1 where God actually says, let us make humankind. And that uh, Creator is already complete. He has his way, if you want to put it that way, already, without making the world. And yet this God desires to bring into being a world that's going to have all of these other creatures, starting with very simple creatures uh, in the first days of creation, as, it's, as the story is told, but then culminating in these creatures who are made in his image. He actually wants partners. And so when we think about the highest form of power, I think we do often think, boy, if I really had power, I would just say, you know, do it, and people would do it. <laughs> they would basically be little uh, robots obeying my commands. Um, and this is what we think it would be like to be God, to be able to just move things around and move uh, persons around without regard to what they want. But it seems like the deeper form of power is actually to call into being other other persons who can actually collaborate with you, because that's what God essentially invites these creatures made in his image to do, to be his representatives in the midst of creation. So, you know, we really have to get away from this idea that the, the realist form of power is control or command, and realize that actually the realist form of power is creation and collaboration. That's when you have the most powers, when other people actually take up their own creative abilities. And, and that understanding, that perspective is, is critically important, isn't it? Because if we're going to redeem power, then there has to be something worthy of being redemptive there. And so often, as I say, I think, Andy, a lot of us mistake power for meaning. That means you get to do whatever you want to do in order to the other people around to do your bidding, which, as we're learning, is absolutely not the case at all. So then yeah. at the end of the day, it's understanding that perspective that allows us to see the good of power and how this can be then redeemed for God's purposes. That was one of the big breakthroughs for me, was when I realized we often talk about power as if it's the same thing as dominance or domination. 
and actually that domination is a, is a very weak form of power. If all I have over you is the ability to make you do things that you don't want to do, I actually have very little real power. And it's interesting uh, you mentioned that. I remember thinking back to a lot of the media reports, for example, over Ariel Castro. This is that uh, guy there in Cleveland that kidnapped Amanda uh, Berry and, and wow. two other girls. Uh, and you would read the story on the surface and see the way which he had held these girls in, in the basement of this house with uh, wire ties around their wrists and chains and everything else. And you think, well, there's demonstrative of this guy being so powerful, wielding all this power over these girls. And yet the deeper you get into the psyche and the story, well, you know. begin to realize, no, this guy's not powerful at all. In fact, he's pretty powerless. Yes. And, the, and you know, Paul uh, will use the language of impri- imprisoned or slave. You know, a slave especially in the ancient world, with someone who had absolutely no power of their own, completely dependent on their master. And Paul says, if we really get, gave into that idea of domination, if we got what we think we want, which Ariel Castro did kind of get for a time, what he thought he wanted, the ability to dominate, we actually become slaves uh, of sin. We, we don't end up being masters. And that's why the serpent's promise in the garden is so... Um, appealing and so deceptive, because actually once the man and woman get what they want, what we want, to be like God without having to be in relationship with God, they actually find that they don't have what they wanted at all. Um, and that's what where domination leads. It, it actually, strangely enough, leads to the the one who would be master ends up being becoming completely so mastered by it. Really, Satan is in the process of distorting power then from the very beginning and all the time. Yeah. I mean, think for example about Jesus there during the forty days in the wilderness uh-huh. and the number of times that he was tempted. And and I always read those passages and thought to myself, Satan, you're an idiot. I mean, to begin with, you're going to say that you're going to offer. Very God himself here, if you just bow down and worship me, I give you all of the kingdoms of the earth and so on and so forth. And I always thought to myself, how can you give God what he already has? <laughs> it's all his to begin with. He created it all. So how can you give him what he already has? Yes, but, you know, in a way, Jesus is the only human being who has heard those temptations and not at some level given in. Mm-hmm. Now, not all of us uh, have heard the promise of every single kingdom, but all of us have that kind of twinge of an idea that we're made for more than we have. And, and that's true. Uh, we, you know, we're made, in the image of God, we're made for much more than we currently experience. But Satan insinuates this idea that there's a shortcut to it, that it involves domination, that it involves kind of cheating God of what God, only God can give. And Jesus is the only human being who's ever realized that's actually not, uh, that bargain will not actually work out. It's actually a lie. And if, if he went through with it, he would find that Satan had mastered him. And instead, he came out of that temptation able to, to say no. Bring us back to this full circle of the issue of um, bringing power back into the balance. First, to understand mm. that it, it, it needs to first and foremost be used for the capacity to do good. And we see, when we really mention this even from the very get-go, as we see this in Scripture, the very first acts of God are crea- is the demonstration of creative power. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I think one question to ask is, you know, with whatever power I have today, you know, you mentioned I have a, I have a title, I'm executive editor of a magazine called Christianity Today. Well, that's a position of power. So the question is, I think there's a couple questions. One is, who am I using that power for? And if the answer is I'm using it mostly for my own benefit to, uh, you know, increase my own notoriety or fame or my own wealth or, you know, any number of things, then it's, I'm probably going to end up using other people for my ends. But it might be possible to use even, you know, positions like that actually for others flourishing. And I think in the case of people who, say, own a business, so that it could be a small business or have a position like I do where you are in charge of some people, you, you actually are given power not for your own flourishing but for their flourishing. So one of the most important questions we can ask is, who is flourishing because I have power? <laughs> and if the answer is me and mine, that isn't very much like the true God. But if the answer is the people who actually are under my care are flourishing, they're becoming more of what they're meant to be, they're expressing their own power, they're getting to do things they, they wouldn't have gotten to do otherwise, then I think we're on the path to a much better use of power. 
If you've just joined our conversation tonight, Andy Crouch is with us. He's the author of Playing God, Redeeming the Gift of Power. Now, when we come back after a quick timeout, we're going to go deeper into this topic, uh, how we can go about utilizing the creative and malevolent power that God has given to all of us um, in order to use it for his glory, to go deeper in our relationships, not just with God on the uh, uh, the vertical plane, but with others on the horizontal plane as well, as Andy just referred to. We'll take a brief time out, come back to more of our conversation right after this. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Well, as we're discovering in our conversation tonight with Andy Crouch, and certainly displayed throughout so much of Scripture, uh, power can be used in very many good ways. We think of creative power. We think of the power that has been given to us unto salvation through Christ's substitutionary work on the cross. Uh, And yet, as we see the good side, the good aspects of power, we also recognize there's a power struggle. There's a balance between power being good, used for good, or power being good, used for evil. How do we go about harnessing, harnessing power for the use for good, for the glory of the kingdom, and learn how to become, I guess, ultimately, Andy Crouch, trustees of power. We're, we're, we're kind of entrusted to this. It's just what we do with it, huh? <laughs> yes, that's right. And, you know, the title of my book is Playing God. And we usually say that like it's a bad thing. Uh, and it is a really bad thing if you're not playing the true God. But the, really, the question is not whether you're playing God or not. It's which God are you playing. You're going to play some image. You're going to bear some image with your life. Your life will either reflect the image of a false god, the god of domination, the god who has to get his own way, or it will reflect the the image of the true god, the god who, when things went so terribly wrong, was even willing to give up his own son uh, to bear pain rather than inflict pain. Um, So it really comes down to what you believe ultimate reality is about. And if you believe that the Christian gospel is true, it's going to change, I think, how you use the power you have and also who you use it for. You won't use it primarily for your own benefit, and you will use it, especially, it seems to me, for those who are the, the most vulnerable, the least and the last and, and the lost that Jesus talked about so many times. Jesus kind of reorients our use of our power towards people who can never pay us back necessarily, who can't benefit us, but who our exercise of power can actually help them flourish. This is kind of a delicate dance, isn't it? Because we see, for example, um, examples of uh, servant leaders. These are individuals who who have power, maybe within an organization that they can hire and they can fire, things of this sort. uh, And and yet they wish to, instead of putting that power to use to demonstrate how much power they have, rather Mm. sharing it with others to to empower them. It's interesting how uh, perhaps there's a, a certain power of shared power, isn't there? Absolutely. And I think that's a a wonderful model. And uh, in a way, you know, I think power really is, it's supposed to be used to serve. Um, That is to say, it's supposed to be used to help others flourish who would not have flourished if you didn't use your power. So if you have one of those positions, your responsibility is to make sure that other people flourish. And that's, in a way, the deepest, I think, sense of what serving well, is. Well, we, and we certainly see that, you know, throughout Scripture. I mean, for example, God is a righteous and holy God who created us, could have easily said, well, huh. my creation has offended me, and therefore I'm going to use my power to punish and abolish my creation. Instead, he used his power to bring about victory over death and sin through the work that his son did on the cross. It's amazing. And, you know, as amazing as creation is, in some ways, the new creation Paul talks about, which is the result of the the giving of God and God's Son on the cross, is even more amazing. The new creation is just extraordinary that God reaches into this broken world and doesn't act simply to wipe things out or to even to command and control everything but starts recreating right in the midst of it and ultimately is going to make everything new, it says in Revelation. That's real power. (laughs) The ability to make all things new, to wipe tears from people's eyes, from everyone's eyes. Um, And we, of course, we only get a little taste of that uh, in our own lives. We're only given a tiny measure of that, and any more than we have would overwhelm us. But I do think we have access to that kind of recreating power, as well as the sort of original creativity that was human beings' birthright as image bearers. 
How do we start this process in terms of, I think, probably just evaluating where we're at in this power struggle uh, that we have yeah. with God? And, uh, th- of course, that, that then spills over into every other relationship. How do we go about ana- analyzing, Andy, the way we're using our power, either to good or to yeah. evil, and then learn how to rebalance it so that it becomes a, a redemption of power? I think that's a fantastic question, and you know, I would start with our uh, with our neighbor who we have seen, as James says. James says, you know, how can you love God who you haven't seen when you can't love your neighbor who you have seen? And we can sometimes be very clever about rationalizing our relationship with God, but our neighbor sees how we treat them. And I'm thinking, maybe not so much our next door neighbor, though it could be that, but the people who are closest to us. I think the place to start is to ask. to create an environment where you can honestly ask and honestly hear, how am I using whatever power I have? Um, And so husbands should ask this of their wives, uh, and wives should ask this of their husbands. It can start at home. It can happen in the workplace to say, you know, I have power in this position, perhaps, and asking the people who are affected by that, how am I doing? And making sure that they can answer honestly. Now, that takes time that takes building trust but i think other people will the other thing that happens most of us don't think we have very much power but when you ask other people what are some of my gifts what are areas where when i do this it really creates things they will they'll give you insight into the power you actually have even if you don't have a title that seems like it has a lot of power or a position that seems like it has a lot of power now let's talk then about relationship to bringing that power balance back in our in our relationship with God. Mm. So then I so once we've started to uh hear from our neighbors <laughs> how we're doing I I think there's a huge place for you know what often the Christian tradition is called the spiritual disciplines. Because the spiritual disciplines actually put us in a very powerless place. When I fast or when I am silent or when I pray alone there's no one to impress <laughs> it's not something I'm very good at. I think the interesting thing about the spiritual disciplines, like fasting, is any, any human being, uh, any healthy adult human being can do that. It's not hard to do, and yet it's impossible to do it well. Then when you seriously take up a discipline of fasting, you discover how, how uh, sort of uh, accustomed you are to filling every little need with food, and you discover how much you need God. And so I think the spiritual disciplines are, are ways that sort of train us to realize how dependent we've become on our own sense of ourselves and our own sense of power. And they, they sort of lay us open before God, and it's amazing what you discover about yourself in prayer as you practice these disciplines. And at the end of the day, it's not that God wants to strip us of power. It's how we channel and how we direct that, how we use that power. He wants us to have true power, and more, I think, than we ever really imagined. Uh, you know, Paul, when he's trying to deal with the church in Corinth, and they're you know, taking each other to court, <laughs> he says, look, don't you know we're going to judge angels? I mean, there's an immense amount of power that is waiting to be conferred on these redeemed image bearers that God wants to bring back into his creation, the way it was originally meant to be. So God, you know, this is the... the the great lie is that God wants to take power away from us and keep us from having things we want, <laughs> when in fact God has more for us than we could ever imagine. But it's a matter of becoming the kind of uh, image bearers who can bear the weight of that and who can not be uh, kind of corrupted by it. To whom much is given, much is expected. Yeah, yeah. And that really kind of brings us full circle on this topic tonight. I, I sure appreciate you diving into this. Andy, because it's one that I think, you know, again, we we look at all mankind and we see a power struggle going on. We look at history, we see a power struggle going on. We look at scripture, we see a power struggle going on. We look at sin in our lives with God and we see a power struggle going on. It's not that power is a bad thing. I mean, thank goodness for power. We wouldn't be on the radio right now if it wasn't for power. And yet if I walked up to one of the towers and decided to wrap my arms around it, I could also find out that the same power that's allowing our voices to get out all over the San Francisco Bay Area uh, could strike me dead in the wrong fashion in a quick second. So it really comes down to our relationship with power and what we do with it. 
Exactly. And the good news is God is at work in all this. And uh, that very thing that can electrocute, <laughs> and in a way did electrocute his son, right? His son suffered the worst that human power can do. That God can even overcome that and has something amazing on the other side of it that really brings a blessing to, to the world. And that's what I think the hope that we can have as we realize that power is everywhere, uh, but, but God's power to redeem and recreate and restore is everywhere as well. You, you might initially hear the topic and say, well, this is a good book. I'm going to get a copy from my boss. <laughs> um, or I have a husband or a wife or whomever that seems to be on a power trip. But really, all of us struggle at one level or another with power, trying to redefine what our relationship with power is, and then to learn that this is not something that um, should be shunned, per se, that in fact it's a gift from God. How do we, though, redeem it for his purposes? You'll find some great insights (coughs) inside the pages of Andy Crouch's new book called Simply Playing God, Redeeming the Gift of Power. The new book, again, Published by InterVarsity Press, you'll find it at bookstores throughout the Bay Area, as well as uh, well, all the usual suspects, Amazon.com, etc. Andy Crouch, thanks so much for being with us. Great book, great conversation. There's Andy Crouch, executive editor of Christianity Today, author of the new book, Playing God, Redeeming the Gift of Power. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Well, if the market volatility of the last many days hasn't already given you a stomachache and whiplash, I don't know what will. Welcome back to the program. Boy, it has been, for many people, a fingernail-biting, white-knuckle experience on Wall Street the last many days. Much of this, of course, over concerns related to China's economy. Now, how is this impacting markets here in the United States? Let's get some perspective about the side of the story that Wall Street doesn't want you to know from the guy that does. He's Phil Grandy, host of the wildly popular syndicated program, Phil's Gang. Details on the web at philsgang.com. And Phil, great to have you on the program. All right, break it down for us. Gee, we spent months and months and months wringing our hands over Greece and the European Union. And my goodness, what is this going to do to the U.S. stock markets? And all of a sudden, out of seemingly nowhere, in roars China. What's the old adage? Uh, You used to say when the United States sneezed, the rest of the world caught a cold. It seems in this case, China's got a cold and the United States, at least seemingly, has caught in the flu. Yeah, but my my take has been a little different is that, you know, everybody's looking at China and that's what everybody's talking about. But really, China, what you saw in the last few days in this market, and we call it here at Phil's Gang a correction. We don't call it a crash because a crash to us is something that happens when you have absolutely no control over it. Your stocks are going down. You don't know what to do. You're not making money. You're on the wrong side of the transaction. We caught this market in May. We told our gang members in May that we saw this market was going to crash within the next few months and to go short. So we started to short the spiders back in May. In July, we really saw what was going on, and we saw the biggest – we had never seen – so many institutions pulling money out the last week of July. Never seen it before. It was a huge amount of money coming out. And I told my whole my gang, I looked at our PT2 chart. It just turned red. And I said, let's short this right now today. So we were in good position. And we, and we, we really benefited well. But going back to how I look at it, everybody's blaming China. I, I'm not blaming China at all. Certainly China, China was the catalyst. But it was the policies okay, of this administration, this Federal Reserve, that got us to where we were with this crash. Because if you go back to November 8th, I mean November 2008, the policies that were set forth there with all this QE, putting in $3 trillion into the stock market, and they lied to us and said it was to create jobs, when it had nothing to do with creating jobs. It was all about getting the stocks to rally, uh, taking and and, uh, doing some accounting tricks so the banks could... uh, uh, take the, and fudge their balance sheets, and then of course you know about the Fed taking the, the dropping their interest rates down a, a quarter from five and a quarter, and and all all those games that were being played, and all this stimulus and all this money, it, it was it, it was a, the, we weren't in a recovery. The market wasn't a recovery. It wasn't a rebound. It was a propping up. So you only could do that so long. And then when September when 2012 came, we really saw something going on. 2012. We saw that China was going into trug- in real trouble, and we saw their economy was really getting bad. 
And that's when they came in with their policies here in the United States. Uh, the Fed came in, I mean, and they started to really prop up the stock market. They really went wild on stock buybacks, pushing this market even further, which we knew then. I kept saying since 2000, this is really getting serious. Yes, we were making good money. The market was going up, but it was all built on sand. What happened with China, once China started to fall apart because they, you know, again, we're one of their biggest consumers. And we started to see back in, in April and May, we started to see oil collapsing. We started to see iron ore prices collapsing. We knew that China was in big trouble. And because their big customer, us, we didn't have any jobs. We didn't have any savings. All our jobs were part-time. But it was that stock market. It was the masking of the economy using the stock market. All these part-time jobs. It was inevitable that this was going to happen. And it did. Yes, China was the catalyst. When China... Finally, finally, they just threw the towel in, and their market crashed in August. And even then, even then, I was watching CNBC, and they were making no big deal of it. And, and, they're, and they're making no big deal of the economic numbers that were terrible, from durable goods to savings to manufacturing for months and months. Nobody cared about the durable goods number. Nobody cared about the financial numbers, the fundamentals of this economy. They didn't care because the market kept going up. So, yes, it was China finally uh, tipped it over, but it wasn't China the cause of this market. So is it fair to say then, Phil, that essentially the artificial stimulation that we've seen that the Fed has been pouring into this for years now, of course, we've seen them back off of the quantitative easing. But even with that, essentially then this artificial stimulation, you're saying, just plain ran out of steam. Sure, because in 2012, when China, because when we hit two, we were running together. Matter of fact, China in 2008, it was just at the perfect time that China decided they were going to build their infrastructure, they're going to build these cities. Remember all these big cities that are building in China? Oh, all the, one, the big cities that are, that are completely sure. unoccupied? Yeah, yes. That's the one. <laughs> well, that started in 2008, and that was a very good help to us because we were really down in the gutter, and they were helping us because, again, they are buying the commodities and so forth. But what happened was between 2008 and 2012, we weren't having good jobs. We were not. Our economy was not growing. We're still two percent. They kept lying about our unemployment rate was coming down to five percent when it's really twelve, thirteen percent. At 2012, that was the point right there. That was the inflection point. That all of a sudden China started to fall apart, and instead of we fixing it, our, we said let's double down. Let's double down on stock buybacks. Let's double down on QE. And you're right. And finally, what happened? We started to go sideways for six months. You go look. For the last six months, the market was going sideways. And I'll never forget, we had a rally, and we had the rally back in, uh, I think it was in, in, uh, not, it was in um, I think it was October, if I'm right. No, it was in February. February 2015, we had a 7% rally, and I looked, and I said, wait a minute, something's wrong here. I said, 25% of this rally was Apple. And I said, something happens to Apple, we're dead. And from that point on, we stopped going up. And the market would go down 4%, up 4% for six months. And then finally, that's when, when, when May, things really started to fall apart. And then July, when everybody was pulling their money out of the market, the institution, then we had our crash. But for that six months, we were going sideways. And the key was that rally in February. I'm telling you, Craig, that's when I told my gang, something's really wrong. You can't. I said, it's like having a restaurant. You own a restaurant. And... <laughs> And every night you're happy, you're doing good business, but you look, 25% of your business is a big fat guy that eats half your food. Well, if he dies, you're, you're going to go out of business. Well, and you got to know at the end of a seven-year-long bull run, eventually the chickens had to come home to roost. And I, I, I wonder if it's accurate to liken this to, I don't know, the, the cheerleaders along the side of the, of the field there. The team is on the field. They're doing the best that they can, duking it out with the other team. And the cheerleaders are just in there with the pawn-pawns and the band is playing and Everybody's trying to cheer these guys on to victory. But you look at the scoreboard and say, we are three-quarters of the way through the fourth quarter, and our team is behind 35 points. Mm-hmm. There isn't a Hill Mary pass in the world that's going to be able to pull this thing out of a hat. And yet the cheerleaders are still doing their things with the pom-poms, and they're all excited, and the band is blowing as loud as it possibly can. There's that sense that there's excitement about what's going on, but the numbers prove a different reality. Is that a good analogy to what we're seeing going on here in terms of the fundamentals? Oh, excellent. And, and, and the other thing that was going on was when this market kept going up, this 160%, when you looked inside the market, it was so bad 
because it, it, they kept saying how we had this housing boom. There was no housing boom going on. That's when BlackRock and the rest of them came in, and they, they went to the banks and bought off their balance sheets all the foreclosures, and they were given all this free money, and, and, and they turned these houses into rental. And, and that, that, that was re- – first of all, he's going, wait, we're, we're not a rental nation. We're an ownership nation. So how could they say this? we got a strong economy when we have more people renting than owning? And that's when they said, hey, this is a housing boom. And they stayed with that narrative. We have a housing boom, housing boom, and we have a labor boom. Yeah, we had 225,000 jobs a month, but most are part-time. All, job, all, all housing, good housing, comes from strong full-time jobs. We didn't have full-time jobs. So everything was so fake, but nobody cared because they were on cocaine. This 0% money, was they got addicted to it. The one percentile got addicted to it. It was the same one percentile that took care of Congress, same one percentile that took care of Obama, and they, and, and they didn't care anything. When this market was going up, they just put a blind eye to all of, of the uh, economic numbers that were coming in that were so bad. I mean, every month they come in, they get worse and worse, and nobody cared. Nobody cared. We'll take a brief time out. We're going to come back to more insights. Really, it's the backstory of what Wall Street doesn't want you to know. A look at the events of the last several days, the markets, and more as our conversation with Phil Grandy from Phil's Gang continues. By the way, more information on the web, just go to philsgang.com. That's philsgang.com. We'll take a time out. Back with more right after this. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. And welcome back to the program. Again, let me reiterate, if you're just joining us, uh, we have with us today a gentleman that has been in the world of investing and trading for many, many decades. He has an uncanny, unique ability to really get to the nitty-gritty, the story behind the story of what's going on on Wall Street. Oftentimes, it's the ability to sort of break through all of the noise and the buzz and the propaganda that Wall Street is promoting to tell you what's really going on and then using that insight to make wise investment decisions. Decisions. His name is Phil Grandy. He hosts the nationally syndicated program Phil's Gang, heard weekday afternoons at 12 noon on AM 1220 KDOW. And you can get more information about Phil and, of course, joining the gang and what that means for you and your money. We'll have Phil tell us more about that in a moment. But details, meanwhile, on the web at philsgang.com. That's philsgang.com. One of the interesting aspects of all of this over the last um, several years here, Phil, since the, the downturn, I think we hit the bottom in March or April of 2009 when the Dow was at 6,000 and change, and of course wildly up to these numbers at the peak, over 18,000. So in six, seven years' time, we've seen the Dow triple, and yet the one reality that Wall Street never wanted to talk about is what's going on with the price-earning ratios. Let's talk, for example, about Tesla. This is the darling of the San Francisco Bay Area, Silicon Valley, great sense of pride and all the new technology that Elon Musk is rolling out. And yet here is a stock that at one point is trading for $280 a share. And then they come out and announce in the last quarter they lost $185 million. Yeah, and, and you go back to all these companies and go back, look at the first quarter and second quarter of this year. And you go back and... While all these companies were saying uh, they, they, everything was wonderful, their earnings growth, okay, I'm talking about an aggregate of these companies, the S&P or whatever, their earnings growth were going down, their revenues were declining, their production was complying, uh, uh, going down, uh, and it, we, it was amazing. Their earnings growth was declining, but their, and, and their sales were declining, and yet they keep showing how their earnings were taken off, their earnings, but the earnings were all fake. And it was there, it's all fake when you go in. And, the stock buyback, Craig, is what took all these companies since two. I'm talking from 2012 now, because it was because it was the QE up to from 2008 to 2012, putting the three trillion in and all the other stuff. But in 2012, that's when they went nuts with stock buybacks. All these companies masking masking the terrible revenues, masking the terrible earnings, and and then the PE ratios. Look at the S&P, 21. And and here's the problem. How are you going to raise interest rates when you have a P.E. ratio on the S&P at 21? You're going to raise rates? Are you nuts? And that's the problem. 
They want it both ways. They, they, they're telling us the, the big P ratios and they're, they're cheap, but at the same time they want to raise rates. How do you raise rates when, you, when your P ratios are so high? And these P ratios are so terrible. So, so uh, I mean, it was just fraud. And so it's catching up. And we're not done yet. This is funny. We're not. Everybody thinks this is the end of it. This is. This was it. It's over. We're going to come back. This is what CNBC says. Oh, really? You're going to have another 10 percent, 15 percent drop. Let's talk about that for a moment, because one of the things that has to be just instilling the absolute fear into the Fed and Janet Yellen is, OK, if that were to happen, what next? What possible tools do they have at their disposal to try and manage another significant downturn when they're already, you know, giving the money away? I suppose banks can start charging us to have funds held on deposit. So, right. you know, you want to you want to you want to deposit your paycheck. You'll put your two thousand dollars in. And by the way, you have to give us another hundred and fifty dollars just for the privilege of doing so. I guess they could go in that direction. But it really oh. spells a management challenge, doesn't it, for the Fed yeah. when? There's really nothing left. Oh, they're they're done. Here's their problem. If you saw in the last two days, or, or let's go back to Friday, and then we woke up Monday morning. You remember we had the, almost a 1,300 point drop. We never saw that kind of drop in one day ever before. And here's why: the panic set in because the real money, the institution money, the smart money. Here's what they knew: they know that the way they stop recessions is the first the bullets they have. The ammo they have is always the Fed rate. If they're charging the banks five and a quarter like they were, and then in November 2008, they turned around, they dropped the rate down to a quarter point. And so they sell the money a quarter point to the banks, and that's supposed to get things going. And they do that for about three months, maybe eight months, maybe a year. That's it. They've been doing it for six years. So they left themselves so wide open, and Yellen is so dumb Yellen turns around and she really believes it's zero percent interest rates will keep you from a recession rather than creating full-time jobs. So she believes, hey, as long as we keep interest rates at zero, as long as we tell people we're going to raise rates, that's all we have to do. We'll keep kicking the can down the road. Now, when this happened, everybody's saying just exactly what you said. Wait a minute. What are we going to do here? We're going to go into another recession. We're already at zero percent. See, they should have never, ever let that zero percent, that quarter point stay in. They should have, we should have been back at five and a quarter two years ago. Because if you don't get back to that five and a quarter and hold that ammo for the next time it goes down, you have nothing. And that's why the panic, we never saw panic, just like the last week of July. I've been in this business a long time. I've never ever seen the kind of selling that I saw that last week of July. And, and then this Monday, I said to Marta, I said, I've never seen anything like this. I said, they feel they don't have any bullets left. This is the first time the Fed doesn't know what to do. They don't know what to do. And, of course, there's another aspect that complicates this whole equation, and that is the fact that we're enjoying a strong dollar. We've seen artificial manipulation of the oil markets, thanks to our so-called allies in Saudi Arabia and OPEC. And, of course, with that strong dollar, that means that the purchasing of American-made goods of what little we manufacture becomes a lot less attractive up against our other trading partners, doesn't it? Oh, and, that, and, that, and we saw that. That's, that's what happened our first quarter of 2015. We had negative growth because of the dollar, the strong dollar, our 3M, our Intels, our, all the uh, Caterpillar. All our big companies were getting those headwinds. They couldn't compete because of the strong dollar. But here's the problem. Right now, what's going to happen? And I believe it's going. To, I believe that this dollar is going to totally collapse, I, and I think gold is going to have its day. I really do. Everybody is looking at gold as like the the the, the bad girl at the prom. I mean, <laughs> gold will have its day because this this dollar is going to totally collapse. It's going to collapse, and I would say within within uh, twelve. 12, 14 months, you'll, you'll, we'll be talking again, and we'll say, wow, did you see gold, what gold's at today? Because that's the only place. See, everybody said, well, gold, you don't go there anymore for safety. You go to bonds. You go to bonds. Are you kidding me? Go to bonds? No. Everybody's going to go to gold. Believe me. It's going to happen. Well, certainly bonds, you know, at one time was a good safe haven, but uh, it, certainly these days, if it's a government or municipal bond, probably not so. I mean, just ask no. anybody who owned bonds, say, in the city of Detroit, Michigan. 
(laughs) Where do we go from here in in your analysis? You've been watching this for decades now, Phil, and there are certainly a number of signals in terms of patterns that we can watch, things of this Mm -hmm. sort. And so when we look at sort of the the geopolitical arena that we're in, we have a major presidential election coming up next year. We have a lot of market volatility going on here. There's instability in China. China, of course, they don't have much experience in this capitalism thing. I mean, there may be 20 years into it, and even with that, it's a managed sort of communist style of capitalism. We don't even know if the numbers that they report are legitimate numbers. So all of this said, where do you see things going? And most importantly, how are you advising your gang members? Well, that's fine. We just talked about this with my gang members the last two days. And I said, we're going into an era that we've never seen before in the market. Okay. I said, from now on, I said, nobody should be talking about, about fundamentals. Forget fundamentals. Years ago, we would always buy undervalued companies. I mean, that, that's what we did. We bought undervalued companies. You paid your broker. He went out and he bought you know, these wonderful companies that had bad management, and the companies, the stock dropped. And you'd go in and he'd call you. You'd pick up that stock. He was getting paid 150 buck commission, not 5 not $10. And then they would take that company, fix it over 5, 6, 10 years, and you'd make a lot of money. Those days are over. The, the, the companies are so screwed up now with, with, with this, all, all this manufacturing of numbers and stock buybacks. You've got to now just have this technology to follow the bad guys. And wherever the bad guys go, I'm talking to the institutional guys, the bankers, when they, you got to go and find, if you're going to buy a stock, you got to go find out who owns the stock. And then you, you and make sure they're all big institutions. And when they put their money in, you put your money in. They take their money out, you put It's very simple. That's where we're going as far as if you're going to make money in the stock market, you've got to get away from fundamentals, got to get away from advisors. You've got to now do it yourself with the technology. That's what we offer every day. And, and we teach people, look, they're going to put money. Like today, we talked about today. I said, you know what? I said, Facebook is going up. Starbucks is going up. Apple. Disney, Nike, Twitter, all those big stocks, they're all going up two, three bucks today. I said, you're going to get killed if you get in those today. You've got to have your technology that shows you that the institutions, once they put enough money in, you buy them. No more is there any reliance on, on, on managers. No more is there any reliance on, on, on fundamentals. It, it's over. So as far as the stock market, it's a whole new stock market. It's going to be all just technology, following the institutional money. Those days, the other days are just gone. As far as the country and where the country's going to go, I think we're going to see some of the deepest, darkest days we've ever seen. And, and because right now, you've got to, you know, everybody laughs at Trump, but you've got to have somebody that's strong like that. You got to Someone's got to take control. I, this, this thing, I, I got to believe that China, okay, and and, and our, the two of us, I think we're going to get into some real bad stuff together. I think we're going to become real enemies over this stuff. I think that uh, you got to get a strong leader, and um, and I, I just see some real bad. It's like a it's like a train, Craig, just going down the track, and the brakes don't work anymore. You, you know, and it just that's how I, I see this. You can just see it. There's nobody's got. Do you really think our Congress has control? No, we certainly we've certainly learned that over the last uh, several years. The Congress is completely out of control. And in some respects, given many of its occupants, that's probably not all that bad of a thing. At the end of the day, it's about learning to follow the money. In this case, the big money. Now, you want some insights as to what that looks like? Why don't you log on today? Check out philsgang.com. That's philsgang.com. You can learn about how to follow the money and how to utilize those insights of what the big boys are doing to manage your own money. Details again on the web. Go to philsgang.com. That's philsgang.com. And check out the show Monday through Friday, 12 noon Pacific on AM 1220 KDOW. Phil Grady, as always, we appreciate the time and the insights. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Communications, all rights reserved.